What a delicious delight it is to be at First Baptist Church, Pelham, to worship with people that I'm going to spend eternity with. This is a preview of coming attractions, and we are getting into redemptive rhythm for that day when we shall stand before him and sing his praises forevermore. It's a wonderful thing to be loved. I love Dr. Davin Watkins. I love Sister Jane Ellen Watkins. I love Molly Grace Watkins, and I love Nathan Watkins. I love the Watkins. <laughs> and uh, son, thank you so much for letting me share one of the great moments in 50 years of preaching to be with you to see how God is blessing this congregation. It's a great marriage. And um, you know this, but uh, Dr. Watkins' greatest ass asset is Sister Jane Ellen Watkins. <laughs> Amen. That's his greatest asset. With glasses or without glasses, she's not hard on optic nerve. Amen. Beautiful, wonderful son and daughter. So many things I want to say, but I'm, I'd better get on because I won't be able to finish. I want to thank God for the shoulders that Dr. Watkins stands on and the person of Dr. Mike Shaw, who the Lord has used for over three decades to labor in this vineyard. And Dr. Watkins stands on shoulders that have preached the gospel from this pulpit and his very beautiful wife, Sister Mary Shaw, who's still here and, and has not missed a beat and continues to faithfully serve the Lord. It's just a joy to be here. Now, in 50 years, I have never really completed a sermon, never. <laughs> and I've got 30 minutes, and uh, so let's make the best use of it. I want to call your attention to Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses one through 12. Let me read. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 to 12. I want to talk about the strength of weakness. The strength of weakness. The strength of weakness. Hear these words from Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord, Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. All power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, 
if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now, hear men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. You may be seated. God is not initially interested in making us strong. God is initially interested in bringing us to a recognition of our weakness that we might discover that our strength is in him. It's the strength of weakness. It's a paradox. A paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. When two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. It's the famed and celebrated statement of G.K. Chesterton, that British Roman Catholic theologian, who says that paradox is truth standing on his head, screaming for attention, saying, I know this sounds bizarre. I know that this looks weird, but if you come closer, you will hear truth. If we are to follow Jesus, we must follow him paradoxically because Jesus is not logical. Jesus is supra-logical. He's beyond our logic. Listen to what he says. If you really want to find your life, you have to lose it. You want to live, you have to die. You say you want to be first, you have to be willing to be last. You want to sit at the head of the table, you got to sit at the end of the table. You say you want to be great, you have to be willing to be the least. And if you want to be exalted, you have to be willing to be humbled. It's paradoxical language. It's what Paul meant when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, I glory, I boast in my weaknesses, in my hindrances, in my insults, in my persecutions, in my difficulties. For when I am weak, then am I strong. God is not initially interested in making us weak, but rather interested in causing us to come to a place where we recognize that our strength can only be found in him. It's Karen James in her work, When Life and Beliefs Collide. She says, when faith is stripped to the bone, and all our props and crutches are gone. Our knowledge of God that he is good and that he's still on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. When faith is stripped to the bone, no marrow, no, no muscle, no tendon, no skin, no fat. When all our props and crutches are gone, the things that we lean on, our titles, our position, 
our financial strength, our relationship, our health. When all of those things are gone, our knowledge of God that he is good and that he's still on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. We love to sing, I've got Jesus, and that's enough. But you and I will never know that Jesus is enough until we have nothing left but Jesus. And what I mean by that is, when you realize that when health breaks down, when titles are gone, when jobs close up, when there are relational rifts, all of those things are futile. That the only thing that you have is what you've always had, and that is Jesus, and his grace is sufficient for you, and his strength is made perfect in your weakness. Because God is not initially interested in making us strong, but in bringing us to a place where we recognize our weakness so that we can discover that our strength is in him. Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, recognizes that. Here is a godly man, and we review his resume back in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. So if you'll turn back there, just a few chapters. I don't want to wear your wrist out. Just back up just a little bit. 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, southern kingdom. He is a righteous king. For the Bible says that he did not walk in the ways of Baal. He walked in the ways of his father David. That is before David's um, premarital or his extramarital affair at age 47 when he had a midlife crisis. But until that time, David walked in the ways of the Lord. And this man kept God's decrees and God's statutes and God's laws. He's a righteous king. Verse number five, he's a rich king. Also verse number 11, for the Bible says that the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judah brought him gifts, verse five. Verse 11, that the Arabs brought him livestock and the Philistines brought him silver. He is not only a righteous king, three and four, but he's a rich king, five and 11. Verse number six, he's a king that is interested in um, spiritual renewal. For the Bible says that he goes up to the hills and he tears down the uh, explicit, sexually explicit uh, Asherah poles and he destroys the idol images and the altars that were used to sacrifice the idol gods. He's concerned about spiritual renewal. Verses seven through 10. Here's a king that wants to employ the centrality of the Torah, that is, the centrality of the teaching of the word of God throughout all of his kingdom. For the Bible says that he takes and sends Levitical figures throughout all the cities of Judah, teaching the Torah, teaching the word of God. He does not want to revisit the day of the judges, where the Bible says in Judges 2 and 10 that another generation arose that did not know the Lord, nor what he had done for his people. He understands if you were to ever have sustained revival in uh, uh, the church of God, that there must be the centrality of Scripture. Scripture must not be on the sideline. It must be the main line. And here is a man who believes in having military reinforcement. Verse 14 through 18. The Bible says in verse 14, he has 300,000 soldiers. Verse 15, he has 280,000 soldiers. 
Verse 16, he has 200,000 soldiers. 17, 200,000 soldiers. 18, 180,000 soldiers, not counting those, verse 19, in the fortified cities. So he has 1,160,000 soldiers. He has a strong domestic force to protect him from foreign invasion and to make all of these things come together to show full strength. Verse number 10 says, all the surrounding nations were fearful to attack Jehoshaphat and Judah because uh, the fear of the Lord came upon them and they recognized that God was defending them and God was fighting for them. So it looks as if they are under divine protective custody, right? No one will lift up their ugly head against them, right? God is protecting them, and therefore, with health and wealth prosperity theology, it seems like it fits here, right? Wrong, because this chapter opens up with a trifold confederacy. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Mayanites, who are the Edomites, are surreptitiously, that is secretly, surprisingly, trying to bring together a trifold uh, confederacy to wipe out Judah. And this is a family feud. These are members of their own family. Ammon and Moab are children of Lot, and Lot is the nephew of Abraham. And the Edomites, or the Mayanites, Edom is Esau, and he is the twin brother of Jacob. It's a family feud, and they are trying to wipe out Judah. There is no pain more deeply inflicted than the pain from someone in your family. No pain. I know that pain. Nobody can hurt you so painfully as someone that you open up your rib cage to and let them get to your heart. No pain like that. It's the prodigal son's father who feels that kind of pain. For the prodigal son says to his father, Father, give me the estate that you have laid aside for me, which is a way of saying in Mideastern culture, as far as I'm concerned, you're already dead because you don't get the estate until the person who uh, is willing it to you dies. He wants it right away. Well, the father has to actually sell part of the property to get the cash to give to this boy. And the boy gets it and goes out to a far country where he takes and wastes his goods in riotous living. And then he comes to uh, the pig pen where he comes to himself. But notice the father doesn't do what the woman does in this parable in chapter 15 of Luke. The woman loses a coin or loses one of these precious, if you will, what we would think as a uh, diamond in uh, the headdress that she's wearing. And she sweeps the floor until she finds it. And here's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them because one goes out. Uh, and begins to nibble until he's nibbled to the point that he's out of sight. And the shepherd takes and leaves 99, not in the barn, but leaves them in the wilderness, which is an economic liability, and searches until he finds this sheep. But this father does not go out into the far country. He stays on the porch, looks down the road, and he keeps fattening the calf. And when the boy comes to himself, the father runs and kisses him and puts a robe on him and puts a ring on his finger and puts shoes on his feet. And then he says, kill the fattened calf. Not go and fatten the calf. That takes too long. 
kill the fattened calf, the calf that we have isolated and given the best feed and grain, expecting that this boy would come home. And when he would come home, we would have an instant celebration. I think, brothers and sisters, when you have been inflicted so deeply by someone that you love, it is not always that we need to go out into the far country and fetch them and bring them back. Sometimes we need to sit on the porch, look down the road, keep on praying and fattening the calf so that that fattened calf represents hope and expectation and anticipation. And if you raise up children and they have left the house of God, stay on the porch. If there are people that you are poured into and they have lost their faith, stay on the porch and keep on fattening the calf. And one of these days, whether you're alive or dead, if the prayer is dead, the prayer is still activated around the throne of God. And one of these days, God can bring them back home. In fact, I think I'm looking at somebody right here that somebody prayed for you, had you on their mind, took the time and prayed for you and you found your way back to your mother and your father's God. And here is Jehoshaphat experiencing pain. The Bible says that he, verse number three, is alarmed. He's fearful. Now, you would think that since God had put this nation under divine protective custody, that he'd be comfortable. But when the, the Lord is blessing, the devil always starts messing. Always remember that. Always remember that. If you have not met the devil lately, it may mean that you're going the same way. You've got to understand that this is not some kind of picnic. This is spiritual warfare. It ought to concern you if you haven't had a cloud in the sky for months. It ought to concern you if you haven't had any kind of spiritual attack for months, even in the church. Please don't think that you're in heaven. This is not heaven. Satan will rise up. That's why we need to pray because God will take and not allow things to sneak up on you. That's really what happened with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat got word that there was this surprise attack and God will send you advance bulletin notices and let you know something is getting ready to happen. And that's why he'll wake you up at three o'clock in the morning. It's such an inconvenient time. You're just sleeping and resting and all of a sudden God will wake you up. You can't go back to sleep. Time to read scripture. Time to pray. God's trying to tell you something. And when you get up and go to work that next morning, you understand why God woke you up because God was trying to spiritually prepare you for what you were being prepared to face that morning. If you walk close enough to God, God will not let you get caught on the blind side. He will prepare you so that you're able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The Bible says in verse 3 that Jehoshaphat was alarmed. He's fearful. The king is fearful. The one who's supposed to be the example for all of the people in terms of a stalwart faith, he's fearful. But I like that. He's authentic. Whoever said leaders should not be fearful. We want our spiritual leaders in the church to be plastic saints and mannequins and not have any struggle at all. He's fearful. It is that father in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, after Jesus has been transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the summit meeting of Mount Transfiguration, and God has sent two heavenly guests, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets there, to attend it and to be witnesses of it. 
Jesus comes down and there's a father who has not had good results with the other nine disciples who've been left there because his son needs the devil exercised or cast out of him. And they're not able to do it. And he says to Jesus, your disciples were not able to cast out the devil from my son because the devil is on the verge of killing my son. Uh, Lord, if you can, uh, would you uh, uh, exercise the demon? Would you not heal our son? Jesus says in question, if I can, no, if you believe. And the man said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I've got belief, but there's unbelief in me. I want my belief to cast out my unbelief. And we need to be so real. I don't know why we think that we need to be super spiritual Christians. God has never told us to be super spiritual Christians. He just wants you to be spiritual and to be a Christian, to be real and uh, to understand that you have some foibles and some weaknesses and some brokenness and it's all right to expose that before God and uh, to come together and pray for one another that we might be healed. It's what Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, said about courage. He says, courage is fear on its knees, saying its prayers. Fear on its knees, saying its prayers. Why don't we just tell God, I'm scared, I'm concerned, I'm worried, I've got a test. And that test is going to reveal some good news or some bad news. God, I'm scared. Why not tell him how you feel? Well, I don't talk to God that way, but you think that way. And the Bible says in Psalm 139, verse 2, he knows your thoughts are far off. That is, before you get the thought, he abducts the thought, he kidnaps the thought. And therefore, since he already knows the thought before you get the thought, why don't you just tell him how you feel? Now, if you think that God is mismanaging your life, God can take it because God is not uh, fragile. God is faithful. He can can really take it. In fact, he'll give you the luxury of having the first word. He'll let you, Job, just um, a belly ache and just say anything you want to say in chapters 3 to chapter 37 of the book of Job. 35 straight chapters. Even curse the day you were born. Just go on and tell him off, Job. Go on, go on. Say, I searched for you in chapter 23, but I can't find you. You're playing hide and go seek. Go on and let him talk. And God will just let you talk. And then in chapter 38, always remember if he gives you the first word, he has the last word. And he asked Job, Job, can I just have a few chapters? You've taken 35. Can I have uh, just a few chapters? May I ask you one question, chapter 38, and you can't even answer that question. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? And he just kept asking him questions, 38, 39, 40, 41. And then finally in chapter 42, verse 5, Job says, I heard of you with my ear but now I've seen you face to face and I repent in sackcloth and ashes because I didn't know a thing about what I was talking about. And the Bible says that in chapter 42, God called Job what God had called him in chapter one and chapter two before Job started talking. My servant, Job, have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He'll hear your sweetest cry. He'll answer by and by. Feel a little prayer wheel turning, no little fire's burning. Just a little talk. Tell him, tell him how you feel. Jesus cries out in Mark 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tell him how you feel. My time is just running. I didn't believe that, but it got to go on. If you just walk with me just about seven more minutes, that may mean probably that I have to, what I wanted to preach, the second service may not get to that, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm home with my son, with my boy. 
Verse 4, Jehoshaphat invites all of Jerusalem and Judah to come down to the temple court and to pray. It's a prayer and fasting meeting. They're in trouble. Three nations, Ammon, Moab, and Edom against one. They know that the odds are against them. And they're coming down there to seek God in prayer and fasting. I think that we've come to a time where this nation can no longer depend upon one day of prayer, the national day of prayer. I think that's good. But what about the other 364 days? What about sweet hour of prayer? Sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my father's throne, makes all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thine return, sweet hour of prayer. When Bill Clinton and George W. Bush sat next to each other at the Washington Cathedral. A couple of days following 9-11, they sit there, not as a Democrat and a Republican, not as the present president and the former president. They sit there knowing that God was the only hope for America. And they sought God. I want to tell you, our nation is in trouble. And Donald Trump and Hillary, Hillary and Donald Trump, they can't transform this nation. No human being can transform this nation. Happy is a nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Whoever you vote for, that's not my concern. My concern is that you understand that the one that we should vote for is the one that's already in. He's not even a candidate. He keeps succeeding himself. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. Our ultimate allegiance, even though I'm patriotic, I'm patriotic and I hope you are too, because this is the greatest nation on planet earth. But I want you to know that our ultimate allegiance must not be to the Bill of Rights that can be amended. Our ultimate allegiance ought to be to the Bible. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Our ultimate allegiance must not be to Capitol Hill, though we are patriotic. Our ultimate allegiance must be to on a hill far away. Our ultimate allegiance ought not be to the flag, even though I pledge my allegiance to the flag. My ultimate allegiance must be to the cross. My ultimate allegiance must not be to government, but must be to God. Our ultimate allegiance must not be to the White House, but to the right house. In my father's house, there are many mansions. And they sat there, these two, president and former president, and they sought God that God would deliver his people. Listen to Jehoshaphat as he prays. He prays in the form of three rhetorical questions. Verse number five, he says, O oh God, are you not the God who reigns in heaven? All power and might are in your hand, and there is no one who can withstand you. It's a rhetorical question, and a rhetorical question is a question that assumes an obvious answer. 
It's a prayer that revolves itself around the sovereignty of God. Are you not the God of heaven? You rule over the nations. All power and might are in your hand and no, no power can withstand you. God is sovereign. That is, God is really in control. Hezekiah would find that out in Isaiah chapter 37. Here's an ultimatum given to him by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, that if you don't take and surrender instantly and unconditionally, then you're going to eat your own feces and drink your own uh, urine. That's pretty, pretty bold talk. But he could back it up because all the other nations had been defeated by him. And he set the ultimatum. It was delivered to King Hezekiah, who spread it out before the Lord and let the Lord read the letter. You know, God can read. He really can. And God read the letter, if you will. And the Bible says there were 185,000 Assyrian soldiers around the wall of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah went to bed that night, got up the next morning, and there were still 185,000 Assyrian soldiers around the wall of Jerusalem. But now they were reduced to corpses. And while the people slept, God works. Hear me what I tell you. God is in control. He may permit some things, but whatever he permits, he will have a purpose to promote. And he will bring things out according to his own purposes. But he went on to pray also. He says in verse number uh, six, he says, God, are you not the God who has evicted these seven Canaanite nations in order that you might keep your promise to Abraham, your friend, who were to inherit and inhabit this land? You promised that in chapter 12 of Genesis verses one to three, I'm going to give you a great land. And now God, we have been confronted with dangers. And we believe that if there is any famine or peril or sword or pestilence that will come against us, if we will come and stand in this courtyard of the temple and will pray, you will not only hear us, but you will answer and deliver us from our danger. Are you not that God? And of course the answer is yes. It's a prayer that revolves around history. The history of God in the story of the people of Judah. His story. You're the God who's been involved in keeping your promise to Abraham. You're the God who promised Solomon that you would deliver us if we would call upon your name in this place. He is the God of history. It's David who can really, really fight Goliath based upon history. He could say to Goliath, I know you're coming to me with the sword. You have a shield. You have an armor bearer. But I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord the Lord of hosts, the one whose name you have uh, blaspheme. And he was saying, because of past experience, I have present confidence. I took and killed a lion that attacked my father's sheep. And I took and killed a bear that attacked my father's sheep. And because of what God did in the past, because he gave me power to deliver my father's sheep from a lion and a bear, then I will kill you, you uncircumcised Philistine. Because of past experience, you and I have present confidence. Do you understand that you can withstand anything that comes into your life by just having some redemptive reflection? Has there ever been a time that God has not brought you through? Has there ever been a time that God has abandoned you? Has there ever been any problem that's been too big for God to solve? Have you any rivers that you think are uncrossable? Do you have any mountains that you cannot tunnel through? God specializes in things that seem to be impossible, and he will do what no other power can do.
Have you ever been on your bed of affliction and the doctors have done all that they can do? I know the word cancer. Not once, but twice. I know that word. God specializes in healing all manner of diseases. And he will do what no other doctor can do. He's involved in your history. The last prayer was a rhetorical prayer that revolved around the equity or the divine fairness of God. And he says in verse 10, but now these Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites, who are the Mayanites, the land that we now dwell in, they're trying to make us extinct. They're trying to drive us out of this land that you gave us. Now, God, you know that they showed us great inhospitality when we came out of Egypt and we were going across the wilderness. And uh, as we were going across the wilderness, they did not want us to have a way to get to the promised land. They wanted to fight against us. And we were going to retaliate and fight against them. But you said, no, you knew that they were our relatives, Ammon and Moab, the sons of Lot, and Edom, the twin brother of Jacob. You wouldn't let us fight them. But now look how they're repaying us. Will you not, verse number 12, judge them? And the answer, of course, is yes. But notice Judah and Jerusalem allow God to do the judging. Will you not judge them? Because God judges by covenantal conduct. He conducts himself according to the covenant. It's no sense of me praying, God, let my enemy fall down and break his leg. No, God doesn't answer prayers like that. However, God takes it personal when it comes to us claiming his promise. Here is this, this man that wants to threaten the, 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 the life and the continuation of the Jews in Persia. His name is Haman, and he's going to build gallows because he's upset with Mordecai, who will not bow down to him, a Jew, and he's going to build gallows to hang Haman on, and he is already orchestrating how he can exterminate the Jews. God takes this personal because he moves by covenantal conduct, and therefore what he does, he knows that if Haman is successful in not only eradicating and destroying Mordecai, but terminating exterminating the Jews that closes the corridor through which Christ must come. There will not be a remnant that will leave 70 years of captivity in Babylon and Persia. And therefore, there will be no remnant. There will be no Jesus. He allows Haman to build the gallows for Mordecai. But Haman winds up being hung on the gallows that he had built for someone else. Do you not understand? God judges. Mm. And we need not try to get back at people. Let people cuss you out. Let people talk behind you back. Don't retaliate. Vengeance is his. Let God handle it. He promised that he would defend justice and defend equity. And if you will let him fight your battles, then you do it by keeping still. Well, my time is up. I just want to tell you that a battle is fought. But I picked this up uh, during the 1045 service. It's time for me to quit. I've already stolen two minutes and I'm going to have to abrupt and just kind of leave right now. I hope I'll see you at 1045.